Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 6. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. For those of you who are visiting today, we're going straight through this book of Romans. And you've joined us as we've come to the sixth chapter. We're going to be looking at the first ten verses. I'm going to be making some remarks as we read the scriptures and pause in the reading of the scriptures. But we're going to be reading verses 1 to 10 of Romans 6. Now the verse opens in chapter 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Now that then is a word that points back to the fact that we've received this great grace gift of justification in which God declared us righteous in spite of our sin. And in spite of the many sins, God's grace abounded to us. When we believe on the Lord, there's this judicial court case in which we're declared to be children of God, we're declared to be righteous and free from all sin. So Paul says, what shall we say then in view of that? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now I want to point out that the verb died is an aorist verb, which means we're talking about an actual pastime moment in God's calculation when he considers us dead to sin. And the pronoun we, how are we, who died to sin, refers to those that are no longer in Adam, but they're in Christ. We'll explain this as we expound the text this morning, but may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Again, I want to pause The verb baptize is a passive, which means we were not in any way involved in being responsible for the action. We were the recipients of this baptizing work that is putting us into Jesus Christ. That becomes critical to this whole context. So reading on verse 4, Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, now this is our old self in Adam before we were in Christ. This is critical to this context. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now, let me point out, sin is singular, not plural. And also, let me point out, once for all this is critical to the context. The sin matter is finished. It's finished in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Verse 10, he died once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, there's a lot of tremendous theology and doctrine in those verses that hopefully we'll be able to expound and make clear. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word of God and the exposition of it to follow later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you today to thank you for bringing us through 2022. You've blessed us, you've protected us, you've provided for us, you've sustained us. 
So as we launch into this new year, we want to just begin by saying thank you for that. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being our God. We certainly want to thank you for giving us your precious word. Thank you for giving us the salvation that we have in Christ. And we want to thank you also that you permitted us to grow and develop in this past year. You permitted us to experience a variety of things, and we thank you for that. Thank you for taking care of us. Lord, who in the world are we when you think about it that you would be mindful of us? It is just a humbling thought to think that you, the sovereign God, that can have it be a blizzard one day and and warm the next day would be interested in us as individuals. And for that, we say thank you. And as we begin this new year, we pray that you would grant us thy wisdom. Lord, we need that. We ask that you would grant us a true, accurate understanding of your precious word. We pray that you would be pleased with us and that you would favor us this year. We certainly want to pray for our country, Lord, and those that are leading this nation. We pray that you turn the minds of leaders, that they would lead us in the right way. We pray that you would turn their minds as you do rivers of water to make right decisions that would be beneficial for your people. Lord, this has been a year in which many of our flock have been hit with a series of physical issues. What we would ask, Lord, is you would grant your amazing healing grace to them in 2023. We pray that this will be a year in which we will rejoice and they will rejoice with how you put your hand on them and raise them up. May we love you more. May we serve you more. May we bear more fruit. And we would ask, Lord, that you would do a sweeping work of grace in ourselves, sweep through our minds, and sweep through the minds of those of our families, and take them and take us to all levels of newness in grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I know of a father and mother who, in pure grace, stepped into a situation with their rebellious child in order to help them out. They got that child out of trouble, picked up the whole tab. And you would think that that would have caused that child to have been so thankful that the child would have wanted to love those parents and that child would have wanted to please those parents and you would think that child would want to change their lifestyle to make the parents happy. That's not how it worked. In fact, it didn't happen like that at all. That child never changed one bit. Like a dog that returns to vomit, that child returned to a, quite frankly, godless lifestyle. That kind of thing was apparently a theological threat to some of the believers in the early days of the church. God, in his amazing grace, had stepped into their lives and he had saved them He had given them tremendous, tremendous grace, justification, and he declared them righteous and put them into his family. He gave them a righteousness that they could never lose. You would logically think that that grace gift would motivate every child of God to love God and serve God, but for some reason, that was not happening with some people, and some were not changing. The Apostle Paul taught the gospel of pure grace. One is saved by faith alone in Christ alone. One is not saved by works. One is not saved by religion. One is not saved by Old Testament law. One is not saved by discipleship or promises that they'll follow the Lord. Salvation comes through judicial justification, declaration, and imputation. And the moment a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this court scene that occurs in heaven in which God declares that person forever righteous. 
It's true that some who were justified were overwhelmed with that thought, and some wanted to serve the Lord with that, but others didn't seem to be so dedicated. And Paul never wanted that, nor did he ever teach that one justified could just go out and live a life of libertinism. But Paul never changed his message of grace just because some people were not dedicated. In fact, any gospel presentation that's accurate to grace will leave people with the argument, well, if works don't matter, and if Old Testament law doesn't matter, then I can just go out and live any old way I please. That's exactly the response and argument Paul expected to hear when he wrote Romans chapter 6. Now, justification is not sanctification. Justification is designed to produce sanctification. It's designed to produce a life that's transformed, a mind that's transformed. That point is very clear from all the New Testament. If it is not producing a different kind of life, there's something wrong in the package. Now, there have always been those who look at God's grace and they use God's grace as an excuse for sin. And there have always been a few who take the position, well, I've believed in Jesus Christ and I'm going to heaven. That's the main thing. I've believed in Jesus Christ and I'm going to heaven, so I really don't need to get too serious in my life about God and his word. Their thinking is, if I slip up and sin, it's no big deal. Well, Paul was concerned that some of the believers of Rome were developing that mindset. He was concerned that some of those believers were developing a practical lifestyle that wasn't a godly lifestyle based on their understanding of grace. They had the right grasp of grace. They understood that there's a difference between being justified and having a practical sanctification in life. But Paul wanted them to know that that justification ought to be producing sanctification. Let's say it another way. It is true righteousness that saves by an imputed righteousness, but it is an imputed righteousness that's designed to produce a practical righteousness. And Paul was seeing people that were beginning to apparently get fuzzy in this idea. So what he sets forth in this text of scripture is that God has justified us and declared us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and he so identified us with Jesus Christ that that fact should motivate us to live righteous holy lives. Now this book of Romans teaches the pure grace of God. I'm telling you and you've seen it as we've gone through it. This book of Romans does not teach a lordship salvation message. It does not teach that. It teaches pure grace salvation by imputation that's found in Jesus Christ. But that should not ever become an excuse to sin. That should become the greatest motivation in our lives for godliness. God never intended that people would be justified so they could just go out and live a loose life in sin. And if a believer chooses to live that way, he or she is going to miss out on many wonderful things that could have been theirs. That's what rebellious children don't understand. What rebellious children don't understand is they're missing out on a lot. They're missing out on a wonderful relationship that they could have with their parents. And the same is true when it comes to God. Rebellious children are missing out on wonderful things they could have in their relationship with God. So when he writes this particular section in Romans, there are two main theological points that he wants to develop. And the first one is, God's grace is never to become a motive for an increase of sin. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Now in the previous chapter, Paul established that one is 
made righteous by judicial decree of God, just like we were declared to be sinful and got the death penalty in Adam, so we're declared to be righteous and we get everlasting life by a judicial decree in Christ. And Paul had established that we're not made righteous by the Old Testament law. In fact, the Old Testament law proves that we're all sinners. This grace package that achieves the righteousness that gives us everlasting life was accomplished by Jesus Christ. So once we believe in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ and we have this wonderful new status in the sight of the Lord. Now, Paul knew that someone would say, well, if we're justified by judicial decree and if the Old Testament law shows we're sinners, and then the more that we see we're sinners, the more we realize the grace of God, then shouldn't we just go on and continue in sin? Because the more we sin, the more we're going to show the grace of God. And some people actually think, well, shouldn't we just increase our sin level to establish more of the grace of God? Let's put it in a hymn we sing. I may sing it today, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, some have said, well, now, if amazing grace saves us, then let's go out and live as much as a wretch life as we can. I mean, that's the kind of thinking here. Now, I must say that the only people I've ever known who've postulated this argument are Arminians, who like to get their works involved and self-righteousness involved and keeping themselves saved. And yet... What we will learn later is that that isn't ever going to keep anybody saved just because they're going to use an argument that says you can lose your salvation because this is not teaching you can lose your salvation. In fact, this is teaching just the opposite. But their argument is if somebody is saved by faith apart from any works, if somebody can just be saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't have to do any works and they can just go out and live any old way they want and still be saved, actually, theologically, that is true. And this will become a key to victory, knowing this, knowing this. When you teach grace and you have a right perspective of justification, it is theologically true that you are justified in Christ regardless of what you do. But I can tell you this, the normal response to Understanding this doctrine is not, oh goody, I get to go out and sin up a store. We've taught this doctrine in this church for years. I taught it in school for years. And the normal response, and I ask many people, when you get done studying this doctrine, does it leave you with the idea that you want to say, okay, I can go out and sin? Because now I've got this positional standing in God, so it doesn't matter now whether I sin or not. And so therefore, in view of me understanding the fact that I'm in Christ and I'm saved forever, I'm just going to go live up a sinful storm. Do you think like that? I don't know normal people who even think like that. Apparently there were some, because Jude, when he wrote his little epistle, said in verse 4, of his epistle, that there are those ungodly people who do turn the grace of God into licentiousness. I mean, there are some people that do monkey with the grace of God, and they develop this kind of argumentation. But sin is never going to be a right response to the grace of God, let's face it. I mean, sin got one-third of the angels expelled from heaven. Sin got Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden. Sin got them the death penalty, got us the death penalty. Sin put Jesus Christ on the cross, 
And he was God's only begotten son. Sin's going to be the reason there will be people who will burn in hell forever. In fact, the majority of people. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way who leads to salvation. Few there be who find it. So the majority of people are going to burn in hell forever because of sin. And sin will bring misery to the life of every believer who pursues it. You pursue sin in 2023, you'll be miserable. You know, that's an interesting thing because before I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I enjoyed sin. At least I thought I did. Of course, it wasn't fulfilling. But now I tell you what, get anywhere near sin, it makes you miserable. It makes you miserable. In fact, for a believer to pursue sin, you lose your sense of purpose. You lose your ability to grow and mature. You lose your happiness. You lose your joy. You lose fellowship with God. You lose the blessings of God. You lose fellowship with other people of God who love God and love his word. You lose peace in your mind and heart. You become unstable in your mind and heart. You lose your ability to pray. You lose your confidence in your own salvation. And you throw away your rewards. So for a justified believer who's experienced God's grace to just take the position, well, I'm just going to go live my life in sin, you're going to bring a lot of negative things into your world. You'll discover if you are a believer who pursues sin, you'll have a long, lonely, miserable life. So when Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. May no one ever think like that. May a believer not even have that thought in his brain. God in his grace has given salvation and justification to the one who believes in his son. No one in their right mind would respond by saying that. Boy, now that I have this great standing in a relationship with God, I'm going to really go out and increase my sin level. No one in their right mind would think that way. May it never be. And then he develops the second theological point. Our identification with Christ is to be motive for the increasing in righteousness. Verses 2 to 10. Now in this section, we are continuing, or Paul's continuing his discussion of the benefits of justification. He's carefully laying out the doctrinal depths of this and what it means to be at peace with God through justification. And what he's describing here is a unique identification that one who believes on the Lord does have with Jesus Christ. We're talking, by the way, in this text of a real identification, not some ritual religious identification. We're talking about what something real here that really happens to people. And to establish the fact that the grace of God is that which should develop one in righteousness, there are two salvific justification realities that he brings out. The first one is believers need to know their Christological identification. Notice verse 2. We read in Romans 6 verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now the context is we have been linked with Jesus Christ by judicial identification, just like we were linked with Adam in identifying with him so we got sin and we got the death and we got the death penalty from Adam. So now we've been linked with Jesus Christ who's the second Adam. And most believers who read these verses have no idea what they're talking about. Because most believers who read these verses think this is some type of discussion about water baptism. Water baptism is not in this text at all. There's no water in this text that can do what's said here. Now, the text says... We who've died to sin still live in it. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel dead to sin? As you sat there this morning, or you listen to this live stream, wherever, do you feel like you're dead to sin? Well, let me tell you, this text says, whatever this baptism is here, it did make us dead to sin. Forget how you feel or what you experience. This text says you were made dead to sin. And the point of the verb is to point back to a point in time when you were made dead to sin and that moment was when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the key words that show up in the discussion is the word baptism. And when you think of any type of baptism, a good word to remember that will help you understand what it means is the word identification. Because in any baptism, something is being identified with something else. Now, the actual word baptism that is repeated in verse 3 and the noun form in verse 4 are words that mean you take something like a ship and you sink it and you leave it in the bottom of the ocean. Or you take a piece of material that's one color and you put it into a dye vat, which is going to change the color of this thing, and you leave it in there. And the end result of this is that this location and position will change it forever. In other words, that ship will stay at the bottom of the sea forever, and that clothing will have its color change forever. And the aorist passive means there was some point of time that occurred in the past in which we were identified with Jesus Christ, and we were identified with Jesus Christ to the point that we were linked with him and changed forever, and that moment was when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only baptism that can actually do that for any of us is spirit baptism. This is what spirit baptism is. How is it possible for us who live in the year 2023 to be so linked to Jesus Christ that everything he did on the cross 2,000 years ago we associate with? How can God link us to that? Here we are in 2023. How can God link us back to his work on that cross? And the answer is by his spirit, spirit baptism. And the moment that one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that believer is connected to everything Jesus Christ did and everything Jesus Christ accomplished. I want to be very clear on this point because this is where this text just gets butchered. This text has nothing to do with something we do. It has nothing to do with something we do. This has everything to do with something that has been done for us, that we received as part of this great grace package of justification. 
That's spirit baptism. We were linked to Jesus Christ, actually identified with Jesus Christ and everything he did. Because when you say, well, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Most of the answers you'll get concerning to be dead to sin are based on something that people are supposed to do. For example, if we say you're supposed to be dead to sin, well, that'll mean that I'm supposed to be dead to sin. I won't any longer respond to sin. Well, you're delusional if you think that. You're not honest with yourself. Fact of the matter is, you have a sin nature, it's never going to go away. I mean, try that one for 2023. You just try today and say, you know what, I'm dead to sin from... This is January 1, 2023. I'm going to be dead to sin the whole year. See how long you last. You'll make it. Others have said what this means is that we should die to sin. We should crucify ourselves to sin. We do the action. Another says, well, a believer dies to sin every day. So as we go along in the Christian life, what it means when it says that we're dead to sin is that we sin less and less every day as we go along and progress in the Christian life. We aren't sinning as much as we used to sin. And someone else says the believer cannot continue to sin but remains in it. It's something that they do. Or it means we no longer have the guilt of sin. We have the guilt that's gone. That has nothing to do with any of this. Nothing to do with any of this. This is a judicial moment in which God literally declares we are dead to sin. And that moment was the moment that we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about a positional identification with Jesus Christ in which he declares us dead to sin. And I know this is referring to the Spirit of God for three reasons. Number one, the only baptism that can put one into the body of Christ is spirit baptism. The only one who can so completely link us to Jesus Christ is spirit baptism. Paul says in Romans 8, later in this very book, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. John writes in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I came baptizing in water. This one baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. Paul writes in Colossians 2, Having been buried with him in baptism, and he mentions in verse 11, it's a baptism without hands. Having been buried with him in baptism, we were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then he wrote in Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the baptism that actually makes us dead in sin is a baptism that is produced by the Spirit of God. It's not produced by us, it's not produced by water. The second reason why we know this is spirit baptism is the verbs baptized are passive, which means the person has nothing to do with the action. He's the recipient of this action. Now, in any type of water baptism, the person participates in it. I mean, they have to come and go into the water, and they have to have somebody in the water, and there's a lot of human participation. The baptism here is non-participatory. In other words, the Holy Spirit does the baptizing work. He's the one who unites us with the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, water is not mentioned in this context. This is a real baptism that really does link us to Jesus Christ. We're not talking about ritual religious baptism that puts somebody into water. You see, when Adam sinned, God made a judicial calculation that we 
sin in Adam. We were calculated dead in Adam. But when Christ went to that cross, God made the same type of judicial calculation that you are alive unto God. And this is a baptism that's all part of this amazing grace, justification, grace gift package. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, God makes this judicial decision that a person is justified and the way that we actually receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about this. You and I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How did we get that? Well, I sure didn't get it by works. How did we get that? We got it via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes that believer back to Jesus Christ, connects us to Jesus Christ, identifies us with Jesus Christ, and all of the blessings of God. And there are three identity facts that Paul develops here. We need to know we've been identified with the death of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 2. We've died to sin. We're dead to sin. And by the way, I want to point out, this is an indicative mood verb, which is a fact, not an experience. You may have flopped around in sin this week. You may have flopped around in sin last night. But I'm telling you, this is an indicative mood statement. You are dead to sin if you've been in Christ. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin and condemnation is gone. Justification has so linked you to Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of God that in the mind of God, you are dead to sin. It's no longer part of you that could condemn you. And by experience, we know we have a flesh that's not dead to sin. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know how many times you've been baptized in water. I don't even know what you even think about baptism, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a baptism in water anybody ever went through that made them dead to sin. This baptism did. This baptism here made us dead to sin. Secondly, we need to know we've been identified with the burial of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, the only kind of people that you take to a cemetery and bury are dead people. That seems reasonable. That seems logical. So if we were buried, if we were buried in the mind of God, we were dead in the mind of God. I mean, if we were buried with Jesus Christ, we were dead in the mind of God. Burial puts a dead person out of the world permanently. Burial is removing us from the world. I mean, when you think about it, when you go through a memorial service, and I don't want to get too graphic here because we've all faced this with our loved ones, but the body's here for a while and then it's not here anymore. I mean, it's gone somewhere. That's what a burial is. In fact, some people at the cemetery call it the final resting place. I never do that because... We know there's going to be a resurrection someday in which that believer is going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. But burial removes a person from the place of earth. And this is critical theology to our identification with Jesus Christ because what God is saying here, don't miss this, you've been put out of your Adamic sin state permanently. You've been buried See, you got the death penalty from Adam. You got sin from Adam. We got death from Adam. But when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been put out of the Adamic sin state permanently. It is buried. That's the doctrine here. 
And thirdly, we need to know we've been identified with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. Verse 5, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our old self was opposed to God and his word, and that was dead and buried at the moment of our justification. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we too have been raised up with a new life, a new focus. As I said, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I enjoyed sin. I don't anymore. I try to stay as far away from it as I possibly can. I want nothing to do with it. It's not anything I did. It's what God's done. There's been a transformation of the process here. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit has so linked us to Jesus Christ that we're forever positionally saved. And when we are in that state, that should prompt us to pursue a life that's no longer a slave to sin. In the mind of God, according to verse 6, our old self, with all of its sin, was crucified with Christ. You are forever positionally free, and that should affect the way you live your life practically. In fact, verse 7 says we've been freed from sin. That word freed is the word justified. It's a perfect passive. The moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God judicially declares our sin gone, and that Holy Spirit links us to the marvelous work of Jesus Christ. And that's the way God sees every one of us who believed in the Lord. Which brings us to the second salvific reality, and that is believers need to know their destiny. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now the link that we have with Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of God guarantees we're going to live with Christ forever. Our destiny is fixed. This is eternal security. As we said before, part of the great blessing of having peace with God is you have eternal security. And I think the development of these chapters is designed to prove that. When you get to chapter 8, it will culminate with just a great climactic theme of nothing can separate us from the love of God. I think he's developing the fact that we are eternally secure. Why are we eternally secure? Because of us? No, because of our connection to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what he's developing here. He went to the cross. He went into that tomb. He arose again, and in the mind of God, he took us with him. And we have life. What kind of life? We have eternal life. And just as the first Adam took us with him in all those negative ways that we weren't even aware of, frankly, Jesus Christ has taken us with him in positive ways. And most believers aren't aware of that. But I want you to notice, Christ died unto sin. That's what it says, sin singular. It doesn't say sins plural. We're talking here about the sin that would have condemned us who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That sin would have condemned us. But he died to take care of the sin problem so that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become so secure in our destiny that we can't ever change it. We will see Jesus Christ. We will reign with Jesus Christ. We will live with Jesus Christ forever. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to live with Jesus Christ. That's why this Lordship Salvation Doctrine is heresy. It isn't based on how I live or how you live. It's based on justification. 
And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the family of God. You are in the family of God, and you get this marvelous grace package that so links you to Jesus Christ, you're guaranteed everlasting life. Now, that I've taken you through that text, does that make anybody in this sanctuary say, oh, good, I can go out and sin? You see the folly of that? You go down through the depths of this doctrine, you're going, man, that doesn't have that effect on us. We don't look at this doctrine and go, well, good, good deal. It doesn't matter anymore how I live. I can just go out and sin up a storm. There's not a child of God that I've ever met who's been justified, who's ever thought that way. But this text should affect us in three ways. First of all, it should prompt us to walk and live life in a newness of life. We should pursue that. It should prompt us not to be a slave to sin. It should also prompt us to live our lives for the glory of God. Now, you may think, well, this doctrine, this doctrine that we've gone through is deep, and it is deep. But I want to show you something from verse 11 that we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. Verse 11 says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. In other words, the key to us having victory is knowing this doctrine, considering this doctrine. And without understanding this doctrine, quite honestly, there will be no victory. Now, here's the beauty of this doctrine. No matter what your sins have been, and no matter who you are, what side of the tracks you've come from, you can have a judicial decree made for you by God in heaven that declares you righteous. And that decree will include the Spirit of God that will link you to everything Jesus Christ is and did. As we saw last time, the grace of God is in righteousness, which means that Jesus Christ had to pay the price to give us this righteousness package. And that whole package will be given to you if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes right down to that. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and you will have a wonderful life in 2023. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you may settle that right now by just inviting the Lord to come into your life and be your personal Savior. Put it in your own words and invite him in. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for what Jesus Christ did for us. There's a depth level of doctrine here that Paul's developing for the Romans and for us that obviously is critical for us to know because it's critical to us having a life that pleases you. So I pray, Lord, that we would think deeply and soundly and soberly about these things, and I pray that in thinking about them, it will transform our minds and life. In Jesus' name, amen.